0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. Today we're going to talk to a registered dietitian, Lauren McNeil. I'm so excited to uh, share this interview with you. So let's get started. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself, Lauren, and where you're from. And uh, how did you get into the science of nutrition, Uh, become a registered dietitian? Did you choose that or did it choose you?
1: So I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm currently living in Toronto, but I originally went to school just for a general sciences degree. And I was enjoying that, but I really wanted to get a little bit deeper into specific topic areas. So I... At the time, I actually didn't even know what a registered dietitian was. I'd never really heard of a registered dietitian before, um, had never seen one before. No one I knew had ever seen one. So I didn't even really know that that job existed. Um, But when I went to one of my guidance counselors at my school, they were working with me to see what kind of career path would fit best with me. And they were asking me all about my interests. And I'd always been interested in food. I was relatively active when I was younger. I danced for 15 years. And and uh, so nutrition was always a consideration for me. Um, and when I had talked to the guidance counselor, she kind of said that dietetics seemed like a good area to get into. So I at a whim really decided to switch into dietetics and I didn't know at that time how competitive of a field it was to get into and to actually become a registered dietitian you have to do a dietetic internship after an accredited undergraduate degree and that internship is at the hospital. So that was relatively competitive to get into. So in some ways, I kind of fell into the field. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, I think that it really just all worked out for the best because now I can't imagine doing anything else. I love learning about food. I love learning about the science of food. I love learning about how we as people and society interact with food, how we make decisions around food, all of that stuff So that was really my journey. And after I completed the dietetic internship, that was at the hospital for a year, I worked in a lot of different areas like neurosurgery, the intensive medical care unit, cardiology, renal disease, diabetes, and I loved working one-on-one with patients. But I decided that I wanted to work a little bit more in preventative nutrition. So Either preventing the onset of disease or kind of helping to slow the progression of it if possible, which led me to pursue a master's of public health in nutrition and dietetics with a collaborative specialization in women's health. And from there, I decided to kind of start my own private practice where I see everyone virtually, so either on the phone or online via Skype or Zoom, something like that. And I see everyone from those who are vegan or vegetarian to those simply wanting to incorporate more plant-based foods into their everyday eating patterns. So I do specialize in plant-based nutrition. I've worked with Dr. David Jenkins, who's really a pioneer in the plant-based movement. And fun fact, he actually invented the glycemic index. Oh, cool. That's pretty cool. (laughs) It is, Um, (laughs) Um, And so that really is kind of the base of a lot of my work. But as I said, I work with many different um, individuals and it's really wonderful. And I get to kind of have that one-on-one collaboration, but I also have a bit of a social media presence where I share um, plant-based recipes or nutrition tips or uh, wellness factors so that really allows me to kind of reach a wider audience as well.
0: Yeah, and it's it's perfect timing too when you look, and I'm not sure how you feel about Canada's Food Guide, but it seems to be more drifting to that plant-based framework uh, around our nutrition. Obviously trying to find some balance, but it's kind of interesting. So tell us about... Uh, how the listeners then, so we'll mention it early on and we'll mention it later, but how listeners can find out about you and, and link into your the work that you're doing.
1: I have a website called wwwtasting 2 and there uh, you can learn about my services and what I offer, but I also share evidence-based blog posts all about kind of the latest nutrition topics and how we can implement this nutrition advice into our lifestyle. So I find a lot of the times we hear about what exactly we should be doing, but it's hard to kind of implement that advice. So that's where I kind of try to break down the barriers to help people with that. And I also have an Instagram page called at tasting to thrive underscore RD, and I share more recipes and nutrition things lifestyle wellness on there as well um i've also recently started a youtube channel where oh. i give evidence based information about the most common questions I feel people come to me and ask so I can kind of answer them all at once and, and help people as much as possible. And that's just tasting to thrive.
0: That is so exciting, Lauren, to hear all those things. I am so impressed. So, <laughs> so I know it's it's so exciting. I can't, uh, I, the, the, the our ability to connect to people in different ways and to give good evidence is just, I think it's so wonderful. Um, so, the, So I just want to come back to sort of the topic of chronic pain So Mm -hmm. in the last 10 years, I mean, there's been this explosion of evidence regarding the role of inflammation, in particular neuroinflammation. So looking at that central nervous system, brain, spinal cord, and how our diet um, uh, can actually drive this process and also contribute to chronic pain. Can you help us better understand how diet can influence our immune system? Sure.
1: So that's a really great question. And it has been amazing to see kind of the explosion of research come up recently. So there are two different types of inflammation Um, and put kind of simply, these are acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. So acute inflammation is a normal and relatively short physiological response to injury or irritation or infection. Say if we get a cut and our body has to work to help to heal that cut. Whereas chronic inflammation, which is what we're kind of talking about, is long term physiological response that can last for weeks or months or years. And it can happen because of exposure to lots of different factors, like environmental toxins or um, microbial, viral infection, poor nutrition, stress, or even processes kind of related to aging and Chronic inflammation is activated when the mechanisms of acute inflammation um, kind of don't arrest the infection or heal an injury, so to say. So it can actually damage cells and eventually lead to kind of the clinical symptoms of disease. So there are a lot of different ways that we can support our body in the immune response. And what's important to know about this is that we want to have a good homeostasis of the immune response, so a good balance. So we need that really beneficial immune response for when we're experiencing kind of that short-term inflammation or ailments, but we don't want to have too much of it if that makes sense because that can what that can be what leads to kind of the chronic inflammation and the ailments that we hear hear a lot about today so there are different aspects of food that can impact our immune system so we can look at the macronutrients so these are the nutrients that Basically, we need a lot of, and these are carbs, protein, and fat, and these are found in pretty much all food, and these are are actually contributing the calories or the energy to what we're eating, and the important thing to know about this is that if we don't get enough energy or calories, our body point blank is not able to maintain its proper function. So we need this energy and these calories in order to have the most basic level of immune function. But then when we take a closer look, there are certain aspects of macronutrients that do play a part in our immune function as well. So protein, for example, provides certain amino acids, which are really important for our immune response. So, for example, arginine, which is an amino acid that our body does make itself, but we can get from food as well. Things like peanuts, soy, pumpkin seeds, soybeans, chickpeas, lentils, certain types of meat. This can really help with our immune system functioning and wound healing. And then when we're looking at things like fat in our diet, this has many different roles. So fat in and of itself is really important for absorbing certain vitamins. So particularly vitamin A, D, E and K, which have all been linked to our immune function as well and maintaining proper immune um immune function, and the inflammatory response in our body. So we need that to be able to absorb those vitamins, but there are also different aspects of fat that are really beneficial to our immune response and actually play a really big role in our Uh, inflammatory response in the body which are omega-6 and omega-3. Omega-3 and omega-6 are really important because they control the inflammatory response in our body or they help to control the inflammatory response in our body. So omega-6 and omega-3 are both essential fatty acids which means that our body doesn't make them so we need to consume them from food. So omega-6 is known more as the pro-inflammatory fatty acid, whereas omega-3 is known more as the anti-inflammatory fatty acid. So these are both actually really important. So omega-6 is really important for our immune function and um, kind of that wound healing, that inflammation response in our body that we absolutely need. However, omega-3, and particularly EPA and DHA, which are omega-3s, but are kind of the breakdown product of ALA, which is an omega-3 that we can consume from certain foods, that EPA and DHA is really important for the anti-inflammatory processes on our body So um, decreasing blood pressure, decreasing risk of cardiovascular disease, brain health, eye health, and our immune function as well. And the important thing to remember about omega-6 and omega-3 is that while we do want both of them, we need to have a balance. So typically when I'm working with clients, I recommend people have a ratio of about four to one or even as good as two to one of omega-6 to Mm omega-3. The reason for this is because omega-6 and omega-3 actually compete for the same desaturation enzymes in our body. So all that means is the enzymes that are needed to break down the ingestion, the food that we eat that has this omega-6 and this omega-3, to break it down into the compounds that our body can actually use. So we actually compete with omega-6 and omega-3 for the same desaturation enzymes. Now, luckily, omega-3 is favored in this process, which means that our body will more readily break down the omega-3 into to making that EPA and DHA, which is excellent. But this will only happen if we're not consuming too much omega-6 rich foods. And this can kind of be an issue because a lot of the food that we're seeing in our current food system today is really high in omega-6. And this is because it's typically using things like soybean oil, corn oil, safflower oil, and kind of those cheap inexpensive vegetable oils Mm. for the more processed foods like margarines and salad dressings, cakes, cookies, chips, Mm. things like that. That's in a lot of the processed foods. And this means that we as kind of the typical Canadian or American diet get a ratio of about 20 to one of omega-6 To omega 3, whereas we're looking for a ratio of about 2 to 1 up to 4 to 1 of that omega 6 to omega 3. So, this can be a problem because we're not able to get those benefits of that omega 3, regardless of how much we're eating. If we're having too much of that omega 6, we're not going to be seeing the benefits of it. So, we really want to make sure that we're watching the amount of omega 6 rich foods that we're consuming. And then we also want to make sure that we're eating enough of those omega-3 rich foods in the first place. So you can find this omega-3 in things like ground flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, hemp parts, And then of course, we know that fatty fish are a great source of that omega-3 as well. So there's kind of two steps to this. So first is making sure that we're consuming enough of that omega-3 from those food sources that I just mentioned. And then watching the amount of omega-6 rich foods that we're consuming as well from the corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, sesame oil, and then the foods that have that in them that are more of the highly processed foods.
0: Interesting. And so even with, I mean, when I think of flax and seeds and things like that, even ground flax, does it matter if it's ground or whole? I mean, that's the other piece that comes up sometimes too.
1: It does. Okay. So ground flaxseed means that we're actually able to get that compound. So the casing or the fibers that are around the whole flaxseed are too tough for our body to break down on their own. So we do need to make sure that they're ground So the best way or one of the easiest ways, I mean, there's no right or wrong way to get any of these nutrients um, like ground flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp, walnuts, uh, fatty fish. But one of the easiest ways is if you're someone who likes smoothies, Mm. I always say to add some ground flax seeds to that or some hemp or some chia because it's a really easy way for our body to get that. And it's all ground and processed if you have a a decent blender. So um, you can really get those benefits as well, or if you're someone who likes oatmeal in the morning put some ground flax chia or hemp on that even sprinkling it onto salads, something like that can be a really easy way to just add it in and I tell people to aim for about two to three tablespoons per day of that ground flax chia or hemp or about a small handful of walnuts or if you're someone who likes those fatty fish like salmon for example trying to incorporate that about three to five times per week if possible.
0: Interesting. I um, so uh, what I, I mean, what struck me actually when you were going through sort of talking about how much of the omega six for the omega three, I would have assumed that you would have said, okay, higher omega three, less omega six. Uh, but when you actually talk about the type of foods, I think, oh my gosh, if you had you know, uh, six times the amount of omega-3, then you would probably be having diarrhea or something. I don't know. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Do you know what exactly. I mean? So I was trying to, because I thought, wow, this sounds really cool. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, that would be probably overwhelmed. Your body would be.
1: Yeah exactly so there is some research that shows that for people who have that chronic inflammation or um, kind of disease states that are promoted by the chronic inflammation that having higher dosage of that omega-3 either from algae which is a direct source of epa and dha so an algae supplement or a fish oil supplement can be really beneficial Mm -hmm. so even up to about a thousand milligrams or 2000 milligrams, whereas typically we recommend 500 per day for okay. kind of the average person can be really beneficial. But of course, speak to a physician or a registered dietitian before you start that, because there's also implications um, with omega-3s as a blood thinner, which okay. kind of makes sense. But we just need to be careful about that. So if right. you yeah. are someone who would be interested in a higher dosing of it through a supplement, just making sure that you're talking to a physician or a dietitian first to make sure that that would be best for you.
0: Yes. So, uh, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about the role of vitamin D? So we see that a lot in the in the pain literature. So what role does it, vitamin D have around uh, inflammation and homeostasis? Uh, within the uh, nervous system. I'd be curious your thoughts there.
1: So there's a lot of data coming out especially now about the role of vitamin D to kind of decrease neuroinflammation. And the interesting part about this is the effects are shown to be the best and the most effective actually for those who are children and adolescents. So if we're trying to prevent things like say, MS or something like that, supplementing as a child or an adolescent has actually shown to be the most effective in the research that I've seen, which is really interesting. And there is a dose respondent uh, relationship with it as well between vitamin D intake or through a supplement or um, sun exposure, which is controversial. So so I do recommend a vitamin D supplement rather than relying on the body to make its own vitamin D. Um, But that role of vitamin D in the immune and inflammatory conditions as well. And it's basically because vitamin D binds to a receptor site in the body that can interfere basically with the inflammatory process in the body um, and kind of cut it off at its source, which is really interesting. Like I said, this This is kind of preliminary research and the exact mechanisms aren't exactly known. The exact dosing isn't exactly known either, but there's a lot of really interesting information coming out about it. And I recommend all clients, to take a vitamin D supplement because of this reason. And because we live in Canada, or most of us might live in Canada, Northern Hemisphere, where we're not getting that really good sun exposure. And so our body isn't able to make that vitamin D. And there are also other things that affect our body's ability to create that vitamin D. And um, these are things like aging even um aging skin isn't able to absorb the sun's rays in order to create that vitamin d quite as well as someone who would be younger when we're wearing clothes we're not able to absorb the sun's rays sunscreen blocks that as well so i recommend all clients to take a vitamin d supplement
0: yeah absolutely i think and it- Kids are so much more vulnerable because their nervous system is so much more adaptable, although we know now that adults obviously have that neuroplasticity as well. But there is constant changing in shapes, yeah. So can we come back to, uh, before I rudely interrupted you around the routine or structure around (laughs) (laughs) mealtime? So what are are your thoughts about that? Because it it is, in my experience, Lauren, a huge problem that patients do not, people, I shouldn't say patients, but individuals do not, Tend to eat in a regular way, especially when they're feeling unwell uh, with their persistent pain. But I'm just curious about your thoughts about piling it all in at nighttime and and what people can do to kind of create some balance around uh, around how they how they feed themselves uh, through the day.
1: That's a really great question, and it's a really interesting area of research right now because I'm sure you've heard people coming in and they probably ask you about your thoughts on things like intermittent fasting and things like that. Um, So previously, we had a lot of research showing that people who ate throughout the day and ate consistent meals throughout the day, kind of were able to, in a really simplified sense, kickstart their metabolism and get their bodily processes kind of going. And were able to kind of awaken from sleep and kind of awaken those processes that are needed to metabolize food and help with brain function and, and things like that. But There's been recent research that's kind of been talking about intermittent fasting and benefits that that might have. And to be honest, I'm not convinced by the research around intermittent fasting, and I see it as something that might be a tool for certain people, very specific subgroups of people. but not something that will work for the majority of people. And furthermore, not something that's safe for mm-hmm. the majority yeah. of people. So we know that intermittent fasting might have a detrimental impact on our hormone balance, mm. which is not a good thing. We want to be making sure that we're keeping our hormones at really consistent levels and the right levels for our body and Our hormones, you know, a lot of people kind of simplify hormones to um, women or to specific things like insulin and diabetes and and things like that. But there are so many mechanisms Mm -hmm. of hormones that are really important to every process that happens in our body. And making sure that we're keeping them level is really important. So that's one of the reasons that I really encourage people to try to eat throughout the day. And another reason that I really encourage people to try to eat consistently throughout the day is because of the glycemic index of food, which also kind of does play into the hormones as well in your insulin response in the body, which is basically just your ability for your body to take the sugar from the food that you're eating and feed it to to the cells in your body appropriately. But, making sure that we're eating throughout the day keeps our blood sugar in balance. Mm. So this will mean that we have consistent energy levels throughout the day. And this is also really interesting for inflammation because low glycemic index foods. So foods that are particularly high in fiber. So a lot of plant-based foods like whole grains, legumes, like beans and lentils, vegetables, fruits, are going to be really good at keeping your blood sugar stable, which is really important for regulating our inflammatory response in our body. So studies have shown that individuals who eat a lot of kind of high sugar foods or foods that have a high glycemic index, so not too much fiber, like a lot of white breads, white pastas, more processed foods, won't be able to regulate their inflammatory response as well as people who eat a lower glycemic index diet, so foods that are higher in fiber, and that also is dependent on eating consistently throughout the day and not having too many dips in that energy which is also really interesting because I'm sure we've all been there where you are really busy one day and you kind of forget to eat or um, you just don't have time to stop for lunch. And then we might get to dinner time and we might be absolutely famished, starving, and we eat way more than we typically would if we had eaten you know, regularly throughout the day. And that has detrimental effects on our uh, blood glucose, so our um, ability for our body to process that sugar and can actually be a source of inflammation as well. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, no
0: absolutely. And and I'm, we're starting to see more and more our understanding around the neuroendocrine system around how we see these cells that sort of try to maintain homeostasis in the nervous system, how, they mm-hmm. act, how the neuroendocrine system can actually contribute to dysregulation. So the, yeah. the other thing that I was going to uh, also include is not only do, I, I mean, this is looking at it from a clinician perspective, not, I mean, I do believe that our body needs good nutrition, but also there is the routine and structure of how we feed our body that creates some predictability for our nervous mm-hmm. system, so what happens to patients living with persistent pain is that they often have a very chaotic, unpredictable pain state because of these chronic pain flare-ups that we've talked about in previous podcasts. So one of the ways to bring predictability and structure into their life is it actually uh, creates a, a a sort of a calming within the nervous system that there is there is something that's going to be happening that's predictable, that's routine, that's structure. And uh, so when we when we, have a chaotic pain state, and we make our nutrition a chaotic state, it creates more alarming in our body. Um, so that the brain is saying, uh, I'm hungry here, I need a little bit of, uh, you know, glucose, or I need a little bit of fiber, yeah. I need whatever, right? So it's, uh, I think the, the, the structure and routine around diet is so, so important as well.
1: I agree. That's so interesting.
0: One of the challenges that comes up over and over again, Lauren, as well, is the cost of food. Um, and mm-hmm. for people to eat healthy and eat you know, eat in a way that is going to help uh, to support their bodies. Um, a lot of people find it difficult. It's, it's much cheaper to go buy, an, you, know, a, a, you know, a loaf of white bread versus something that is more nutritious. Do you have any advice for individuals who are in a very, very fixed income uh, regarding how they can maximize nutritional food or where they may want to purchase it, things like that, just things, little, little pearls? that you might suggest?
1: So this is a really interesting topic and it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, So food insecurity and just not having enough money to buy food is a huge issue in our country. It's, It's crazy. And... You know, there are some pieces of advice that I can give. So one of the first ones is kind of relying on frozen food in terms of vegetables and fruit. So relying on frozen vegetables and fruit. A lot of people think that frozen food isn't as nutritious as fresh food, but this actually isn't the case. Frozen food can actually be more nutritious when compared to fresh, Mm -hmm. and this is because it's actually frozen at the peak of its ripeness. So if we're looking at, say, example, strawberries, something like that, The frozen strawberries might actually be more nutritious because they were picked and frozen at the peak of their ripeness, which means that they still have a lot of those nutrients in them Mm -hmm. than the strawberries that maybe we get at the grocery store that have traveled a long way and are losing their nutrients when they're kind of sitting on the shelves. And frozen fruits and vegetables are also way less expensive than fresh, which is really great. And they also a lot of the times, are pre-chopped, which can be really beneficial because a lot of the times if we are low on money, we're also probably working really hard or maybe we have kids to take care of or maybe we have a lot of other things going on. And if we're low on money, we might also be low on time. And that's something that I see time and time again. So having kind of those shortcuts of, of foods that are already kind of cut or prepared can be really beneficial. As well, um, and also considering buying food dry, so a lot of dried rice and dried uh, legumes like lentils or chickpeas can be really, really inexpensive in general. kind of the basic plant based foods are typically less expensive than um, animal based foods unless you find a really good sale or yeah. or something like that um, so relying on beans and lentils as your protein sources more often can be less expensive as well um of course i recommend buying from stores that are less expensive so stores like no frills if you have one near you or something like bulk barn are typically less expensive Um, and also meal prepping can save a lot of time and money as well just because you are utilizing all of the food that you're buying so a lot of the times we'll buy food and we'll be rushing around throughout the week and we realize we actually don't have enough time to cook it and So it goes bad and that's wasted food and wasted money as well. So prepping that food ahead of time can make sure that a, you have something nutritious on hand to be eating. And then also you're using up that food that you've already bought um, and then also relying on seasonal food more often can be a really good idea. So right now, things like potatoes and apples and squash are coming into season, and those are really, really nutritious as well. Um, but something that I always kind of say to people who are struggling financially with food is, although these are things that are tidbits that I can help you with. And like you said, little pearls of wisdom. It's important to remember that food insecurity isn't just an issue of food. People who don't have enough money to buy food aren't just struggling in that capacity. Mm -hmm. They're also struggling financially in many other areas of their life. And, you know, giving them a budget for food or something like that might not even be helpful to them at all. And they could have all of the food prepping skills in the world and all of the budgeting skills in the world. But if they physically don't have enough money to buy the food, then that's something that's a much larger governmental issue Mm -hmm. that we need to be looking at in helping people to give them more money for social assistance to help yeah. all areas of their life, uh, whether it be food or paying their bills or helping take care of their children or, or things like that. Yeah. And to just kind of also increase minimum wage and, and things like that. We just need to be giving people more money. So even though there are a few tips, they're they're not going to be as good as looking at ways that we as you know, a government can help people with getting more money to be able to spend more money on their food and also more money on their health care. Like there's studies Mm -hmm. that have shown that people who are food insecure also aren't following their drug prescriptions because they don't have enough money to pay for them and and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's very near and dear to my heart.
0: It's so important, Lauren, and to, to look at, I mean, Uh, the determinants of health, I mean, uh, affordable housing, you know, affordable Mm -hmm. money for food. I mean, all these things are things that uh, we know uh, when we can create security around those issues that people can actually live healthier. And uh, so there there needs to be a lot more advocacy and, and obviously a recognition that this is such an important part of that whole person, you know, that total person. I agree totally. So I think the other piece that I want to bring in here that's so important, especially for patients who are living with persistent pain, is that it is incredibly difficult for them to do all that preparation and all that, you know, buying the groceries and things. So being able to recruit family members to help them with that, that that's a whole other discussion in itself in terms of how we uh, how we communicate the need to get help around the planning of some of these things around the food. So someone helping them... Uh, so they often uh, you know going to get the groceries and then trying to do food food prep in that one day would be disastrous for some patients yeah. so so it's it's sort of you know the the concept of pacing, which is we're going to do a podcast at another time is is going to be really important um, and it just really helps to um, minimize the risk that they're going to have intense flare ups that they'll be flat on their back for three or four days and not have the energy to actually do the food prep or even to want to eat their their food, which is a whole other mm-hmm. discussion. Wow, that that Lauren, you've covered so much. It's just fantastic and I know that the information that you're providing will be so valuable to people who listen to this podcast. So what we're going to do is just get you to to kind of give us your link to your webpage, because I'm sure there'll be lots of questions and lots of interest in terms of looking at the work that you're doing, uh, if you could just let us know again. And we'll put this on our webpage um, and let people know that uh, how they can connect to you. But if you want to share that with us one more time, that would be awesome. Sure.
1: So you can find me on my website, which is www.tastingtothrive.com. Dot com. You can also find me on Instagram, which is at tastingtothrive underscore RD, or on my YouTube,
0: which is just tastingtothrive. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren, for your time. And I'm sure I'm going to recruit you to come back some other time because <laughs> you oh, are just good. a wealth of to. information. It's just amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.